I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Virago Podcast, a monthly celebration of books, reading, and writing, brought to you by Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. Hello, my name is Lenny Goodings, and I'm here with Carrie Gracie and her wonderful book, Equal, a story of women, men, and money. Carrie, welcome. Thank you, Lenny. Equal is the inside story of how you challenged the unequal pay at the BBC. This is how you found out you were being massively underpaid as their China editor and how you fought back and won. It's a fantastic read, very exciting and dramatic, and thank God it ends on a good note, frankly. <laughs> thank so you. What, what made you want to write this book after having lived through that? I wanted other women to feel less lonely than I'd felt. It was a lonely battle. And that was despite the fact that I had a lot of support um, comparative to many other women. I was part of a group of, um, of women at the BBC who all felt the same. And we worked together, enormously helpful. We shared information. We propped each other up when we felt belittled and crushed by an internal complaints machine, which we felt was setting out to do precisely that in order to undermine our sense of the value of our work. Um, I had, for my grievance and my appeal in in that internal complaints process, I had a pro bono lawyer, um, I had a union, um, then I wrote a public letter, and after that we had parliamentary support, uh, or certainly parliamentary engagement, which I think became support because they pretty much endorsed our view of the situation. We had the regulator, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, asking questions of the BBC after my open letter. And yet, despite all of that support and living in a country where there has been equal pay law for 50 years nearly and where the law is supposed to mean something, it's not supposed to be a country where the law is just what powerful people say it is. Despite all of that and all of that, I felt the battle was very lonely and very hard. And so I wrote the book in the hope that other women might read it and feel less alone when they read it, that they might feel, OK, this is what I'm up against and here's Carrie and this is what she went through too and this is how she dealt with it and this is how the other women who she met along the way dealt with it and this is all the advice they got and this is how she won and this is what I'm going to do. And would you do it again? It's a really hard one. Um, 
I think part of me says no because it was very tough. Mm. Um, but really, I think I would have to. Mm. I don't see how I could not because I think the... The difficulty about this is that it's a fight which is very difficult for women to win. And in fact, there are some points in my book where my advice to other women is to think hard about a plan B and perhaps to leave. If they've raised the conversation, the pay conversation, talked about the fairness of the pay, talked equal pay, and if they still have a boss and an organization that's not listening, then to go up against that organization is a very grueling, attritional thing to do, as I have found. And the alternative is to leave and to show self-respect for yourself by going and finding work somewhere where someone can see your value, will listen to you when you assert your value and engage with you in that conversation. Um, and you spare yourself the all the days, weeks, months of... Um, bashing your head against a wall, which is what I feel I did and what many other women at my employer felt that they felt that they did. So on the one hand, I'd kind of say to other one, other women and another version of myself, I'd say, Carrie, don't do it. But at the same time, there's something quite special about the workplace in question. I'd been there for 30 years. BBC values are all about truth telling, accuracy, fairness, equality, dignity. And I had believed in that and I had stood up for that in this country in my journalism and also in China in my journalism. And I would have called myself some kind of a hypocrite if I didn't then stand up for those values when I felt my own management were mislaying them and betraying them. But you're very honest in the book at, at the cost of this as well. Yeah, I think there is a cost. And I think, um, you know, people say, oh, why do women still have to fight for equal pay? Well, the you know, the first answer to that question is women aren't fighting for equal pay because they're too smart to do that. This is a fight that it's very hard to win. It's hard uh, to win individually, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. So it's hard to win individually. Um, you need to be in groups of women who are winning it together, whether that's within a union structure or within some other form of uh, group action or whether it's by means of moving to a workplace which is enlightened about the need for equal pay and equal dignity of work and which is listening to women when they say, look, this is the value I'm bringing to my work. I don't want you to penalise me by 50% if I if I have to work flexibly or if I have to go part-time for a, for a period when my kids are small or etc etc there are ways in which workplaces are waking up to the unconscious bias and also the conscious bias that's operated in pay cultures in this country even under equal pay legislation what do you find people are saying in response to the book because you've now been touring with it and do you, are you finding that women are taking strength from this or telling you their stories Yes, both. Um, women have told me that the story resonates because it's um, in the case of women who have gone up against a workplace on equal pay issues um, or sometimes pregnancy, maternity discrimination or some other kind of workplace problem, um, that the experience of trying to engage in a conversation where the bosses don't want to listen becomes a very painful conversation. So both on pay issues and on the battle that then followed about how to address those pay issues, um, what readers are saying to me is, the book resonates, it is my story. 
And obviously, the only thing that's different about it is that I told my story publicly, you know, mm. in the pages of the Times newspaper, mm. in a parliamentary hearing, um, at the steps of the BBC, etc. Um, but other than that, the story is remarkably identical to the stories of many women out there. This doesn't actually surprise me because I would not have written it with such confidence if I didn't already know that it resonated with other stories. Because what happened was that in January 2018, when I wrote my public letter, and it was all over the media, um, women started writing to me in first hundreds and then thousands, emails, social media messages, stopped me on the platform at the railway station or in the post queue or in the supermarket till um, to say, your story is my story. And it, I was so shocked by that. Um, I was very touched by it because it was very moving to hear other people's stories and to feel how much they match my own. But I was also shocked by it because I didn't know. And I know they didn't know either. They knew their story. I knew my story. But we were all siloed individually fighting blindfold in a trench against large organizations. And that's that's a sad thing. And so I wanted to address that in the book, the way that there are patterns in the way this operates. This is not some kind of accident that this happens. And it's not some kind of one off. This is happening to many, many, many people. Well, that's why I want to ask you, you know, what I'm saying about the Equal Pay Act and the Gender Pay Act and, and the BBC's revealing. But why are we still in this situation, do you think? So there's so many answers to that question. And I think it's it's complicated. Um, and one of the reasons we don't get equal pay sorted out is because it is so complicated. But at the root of it is unconscious bias, um, which is a kind of scientific sounding term for sexism, really. Um, there is a huge amount of unconscious sexism in all of us. I mean, we all have expectations. We all grew up um, in at different moments in history where different things were acceptable in in relation to what women did in the workplace and what men did in the workplace or expected. And those biases still exist. I mean, all those children who, you know, if you ask them to draw a fireman or a manager or a, a pilot will, will say that that's a man when they've drawn the picture. And then if you ask them to draw a you know, a hairdresser or a secretary or whatever will say that's a woman. The bosses who are making pay decisions and promotion decisions are just those children grown up. And we don't spend enough time examining or acknowledging our unconscious bias, all of us. That includes me, you, everybody. And and as a result, organisations which um, make pay, recruitment decisions, promotion decisions and pay decisions. They're not examining those decisions. They're not, they're not vigilant. They don't accept that these risks exist. They're not vigilant to those risks because they haven't accepted that they exist. And therefore, they don't monitor when their decisions are fall, falling foul of their these risks. So just to give you one example, Lenny, and I mention it in the book, is a study of veterinary employers. Um, they were asked, does gender discrimination still apply in the workplace in the early 21st century? 44% of them said no, and the others said yes, it does still apply. Interestingly, the 44% who said no were the very same people who went on when presented with an identical performance evaluation for two vets, one called the Mark, one called Elizabeth, only the name was different. They wanted to pay Mark more. They wanted to give Mark management opportunities. They wanted to promote Mark. And 
they are the people who discriminate. So the blind spot about the risk is what makes you vulnerable to being a discriminator. And people need to just accept that we all have these blind spots and be aware and vigilant to them. So I think in your answer to coming back to your question, that is one of the profoundest problems that we all have. We don't see. We don't see. And if bosses and HR were prepared to see, they would start being vigilant and then they would start getting a feedback loop organised, which meant that they could put problems right when they emerge. And they would listen to women when they say, "Uh, I think there might be a problem here. One of the reasons they don't listen to women is because they haven't admitted the possibility of a problem. Another reason they don't have to listen is they know that most women will never find out. Yeah. That Elizabeth won't find out that, that if they were being paid yeah more. that even if they were appointed on the same day in the mm. same vet practice, Mark got paid more. Then he was put up for promotion. She was paid less from day one. Yeah, she won't find out. So pay secrecy is another key factor. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And so what do, what do you say, I mean, one of the accusations always about why women are not getting on better in the world is that we ourselves are not promoting ourselves. We're not asking for pay. What do you say to that? So I think it's a it's a both and and but generally those those who say oh it's a woman's problem are really missing the point because if they look to all the academic research it simply doesn't support that um yes those who want to get on especially in situations where pay is discretionary um they need to negotiate for it they need to ask for it they need to assert their value uh, that needs to happen. But that will not be the key difference because all the academic research suggests that actually women are punished often for self-promoting, that men are expected by the bosses who are making the promotion and pay decisions to do that, to confidently self-promote. 
um, women are often punished for self-promoting because they're in a double bind. They're not going to get on if they do, but if they do, they also may fall victim to this um, being out of gender role in the mind of the person who's making the decision. And frankly, all the bosses in HR who are saying, oh, it's a woman's job to do this or that, they just need to go and read this research. It's all there. I've summarized it in the book so that they, I really want employers to read this book, by the way, because I, I wrote it for them as well, because they are the people with the power so if they if we could kind of short circuit them into thinking all of this through mm. then it wouldn't be so crushingly hard for women to fight this battle and how do you see yourself now now you've, you're on the other side of this a having won the your case but b having written the book do you see yourself in a sort of long line of female campaigners now like are you would you align yourself with the suffragettes, for example, or with the I, Rosa I, Parks? You know what I mean? You've I done. Would, I would put you in those that well, kind of place myself. Is, well, that is incredibly touching. I mean, that you would even think of that. I did not see. I made some. I took some risks and I made some sacrifices, but not on the scale that some of those individuals did. The suffragettes took enormous risks and paid huge prices for what they did. Rosa Parks, uh, enormously patient, courageous campaigner. Dangerous. Dangerous. dangerous In both cases. Yes. So the risks, I took some, but they're not on that scale. And um, I I think, though, that um, it is important at the same time for women to make these points and then to go back doing the work that demonstrates their work is of equal value. I am one of the UK's top China experts. And I'm currently, I would say, as somebody who studied economics, I'm a misallocated resource, arguably, because this country needs China experts. And 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 China broadcasters are even fewer, you know, in terms of somebody who's spent 30 years speaking the language and being in and out of the country and reporting every aspect, culturally, politically, economically, etc., and communicating that accessibly to a general audience. That is not an easy thing to do. It's I regard that as very skilled work, which is one, one of the reasons I read the book as well. Like, I'm actually standing up for China experts, you know, China unicorns, because learning Mandarin and then working in a one-party state under police surveillance and you know the censorship pressures and the difficulty of actually working out what on earth is going on there what is the story this is um this is not an easy job it needs to be properly valued and i need to value it also myself and so there is a point at which i feel do you know what i've made the equal pay point i've campaigned for it i've done the duty of a bbc journalist which is to inform entertain and educate and i hope my book does all three on stories that are true and important and to try to tell those stories compellingly so that they uh, so that they communicate to to readers and audiences and having done that on this equal pay point there's a bit of me that just thinks no I now need to go back and do the job that I thought had value in the first place and that I was um, and prove the point that women's work is of equal value but I think we still need role models and you definitely are that now. Well, well, th- well. Thank you, Lenny. That's that's kind of you to say so. I think also. Um, but we need to see women in power. We need to be see women standing up for themselves. We need to see women win- winning. Yeah, you know, these are important. Good. Well, I I definitely stood up for myself. Mm-hmm. I definitely won. I definitely didn't let anyone spin the story otherwise. Um, 
and the book is part of let's just get on the record what what happened there to make sure that it can't be spun any any other way because um you've taken control of your own story haven't you and that's important mm-hmm. i think this was important to me mm-hmm. so for me the the important thing about about the fight was to say my work was of equal value. That was what was important for me. Obviously, I gave the money away, so I didn't do that equal pay fight in order to earn a big pile of money. I gave that away also for the same reasons in a way that I wrote the book, which is to ensure that other women feel less lonely when they take on the fight. Uh, But for me personally, my personal interest in the fight was to say, no one ever tells me I'm in development and gets away with it. At 55, doing that role no way you do not do that to me um so nailing that lie uh was very important for my own personal reasons i worked 5000 miles from home for that job i underwent enormous separations from my two teenage children it was a tough job i risked survey all the you know occasional detentions and all the other things I've said about working in China I took those risks and put the excruciatingly hard work 18 hour days day after day after day after week after week and I did that because I believed in the BBC telling the China story well and I believed in getting senior women on air to tell it well to make the point that women can do these jobs and having done those two things nobody is going to tell me that my work was of lesser value or not, you know, or, or that would be over my dead body in a courtroom if they were. So that was what mattered there. And then telling the, writing it down in the book, for for my personal sake, yes, it was important to get that story written down so it doesn't get spun in any other way. As a public duty, the book, I hope, um, helps to communicate to readers, whether they be women, men, or employers, that there are patterns here. It's like the Me Too story. There is a workplace asymmetry where women don't have enough power to level up that playing field. Pay is about power. It's about value. It's personal, but it's political, which is why it's so complicated. And I wanted to explain the patterns by which this happens. And we've touched on them briefly, the unconscious bias, the pay secrecy. There are obviously many other aspects to why this problem doesn't get fixed. Um, The motherhood penalty, the unequal uh, caring duties, the way that caring duties are undervalued in our society, and so on and so on. So tackling some of those patterns and saying, as a result of that, the pattern you will find in your workplace is that you're at risk. You're seriously at risk of being underpaid if you're female. And particularly when you get to your childbearing years and particularly as you get older and as you get more senior. So you have to understand those risks. I wanted women to see the risks. And And then take responsibility. And then take responsibility, but Mm. they can't take responsibility for outcomes. What they can take responsibility for is their own actions. And so I wanted it. So at the end of the book, I've done, you know, I've scattered it through the book, the advice, but I've also collected it at the back of the book, both for, you know, for women, for men, for employers. But as the potential victims of the situation, obviously, women have the motive, the very clear um, and present motive um, to read the advice and to, and and the key things I suppose are that I would want to get across to anyone are um, understand your own value in the workplace don't let anyone disrespect you don't internalize the disrespect of uh, 
of a sexist workplace. Understand your own value, assert it clearly, discuss it from your first job to your last. Never say to yourself, well, this is only one pay negotiation I'm in. I'll sort it out next time. You won't or or you possibly won't because pay is cumulatively. It pays cumulatively. You take you take the pay from this job and in your next job, the next employer will say what you paid in your last job and they will maybe pay you a little more. But you're on a lower trajectory if you allow that to happen. It sounds so much about um, power, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, understanding your power. Like mm. I said, what I like about the way you're talking is you're saying, I am this expert. I know my value. I think that's a hard place for a lot of us to get to. It is a hard place. And and so acknowledging the vulnerability of it mm. is is important. The law is there. I mean, we have this law. Um, it's difficult to apply it but it is there in the background of, of your boss's mind so but you I have th- to start with the understanding your value don't you and I that's where so. I think it is yeah I think that's a big journey for a lot of women I think it is um I found it a big journey mm. I mean and in the early are. chapters of my book it's like whoa I'm at sea now I thought I was of this value i.e. the same value as the man and I'm, now I'm discovering I'm half as valuable as the as the next man I am totally at sea. How do I how do I think about this? What do I do about this? Are they, you know, is there some are they kind right? of are they right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't um underestimate for a moment the difficulties that this faces women with. And so what advice would you give to somebody who's in that kind of situation, you know, realizes they're not being paid? Feels vulnerable, mm. you know, because by that time you're usually um, you're not feeling very strong about the whole thing. You're going to have to go up against somebody. I mean, do you, are you saying that you first need to really assess yourself? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think you can say, I think there must be a problem here. We need to have an appointment to sort it out. So you can flag it up. But then you need to have a, a good think, get all the data, talk to your colleagues, try to get your male colleagues to share pay data with you. Some will generously. Some you you may feel very inhibited about this. I certainly did, and I write about this at some length. My difficulties engaging with my own inhibitions about discussing pay with male peers. Um, but I think once you overcome, I mean, you know, it's probably worth pointing out that as a culture, we're happier talking about our sex lives to strangers, including our sexually transmitted diseases and our numbers of sexual partners and everything about our sex lives than we appear to be to talk about money yeah. <laughs> I know um, so it's hard and I'm not t- I'm not denying that for a moment but I think it's important um, because women are, are at risk of being underpaid I mean if I can just step away from the micro from the individual for a moment just, just step to the macro picture for one second in this country one third of the pay gap of the gender pay gap is explainable by the Office for National Statistics in terms of identifiable factors. But that means two-thirds of it is not explainable. And I think there is a lot of pay discrimination hiding in that two-thirds. And that is a lot of money when you look at the course of your life, the course of your working life, the course of your retirement, when you're going to be earning much less in pension as a result of having cumulatively earned much less in, in pay, 
And it also affects your progression as well. I mean, look at that Mark Elizabeth situation. Mark was going to get promoted. He was going to get managerial responsibilities and opportunities even before promotion of grades, bands, etc. So these things go together, the chicken and the egg of pay and progression. So I know that at times it feels very hard to face this. And certainly I and many other colleagues of mine went, do you know what, we'd rather if we can't fix this fight, if we can't win this fight, we'd rather not think about it. Let's just avoid the subject altogether. We're inhibited talking about it for those reasons as well. Um, but you have to get, you do have to talk about it because otherwise you are potentially the long-term victim. And over the course of a lifetime, that is a serious, serious loss, not just financially, but self-respect. I mean, the self-respect issue is huge here. If women are underpaid in the workplace, they're being undervalued. And if they're being undervalued, it's going to come out in all kinds of ways. And you're going to wonder whether that's got something to do with you and 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 how much you're really worth and your work is really worth. But often it's not about you. It's about that workplace and the way it looks at women. I'm not going to get depressed because I feel people like you are helping the world change. Can you just read me a tiny bit? I'd love to. So I'm going to read from, well, really from the very beginning. It's from the last section of the uh, of the preface when I really talk about the values that I bring to telling the story and why I why I tell it the way I do and and how I engage with the narrative because I I try to do it from using the compass of of the values that the BBC taught me as a journalist and then I say at the end of this little preface. On the subject of following BBC values, I can't help reflecting that my own story would have been different and this book would not have been written if my employer had applied to its own dealings with staff the same high standards it expects of them in dealing with others. The BBC is led by people who are trying to do their best, but on gender pay, I think they made bad decisions and then tried to defend those decisions in a way that damaged trust. However, All employers face difficult pressures. We live in a time of shifting expectations for women and pay structures are complex things. I have sympathy for employers who would like to do better and men who would like to support female colleagues but don't know where to start. Start here. I wrote this book for you. I also wrote it for the millions of women in the UK and around the world who are at grave risk of being undervalued and underpaid at some stage of their working life, if not throughout it. From having a conversation in the privacy of these pages, I hope we will go on to make a difference in our workplaces. Look how the women and men of the past changed the world for us, first by imagining a better future and then by working to bring it about. On equal pay, I hope this generation will make change for the next. Thank you, Kerry. Thank you, Lenny. It's just been a joy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and also leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. We'd also love you to be in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or our website, virago.co.uk. Tune in next month for another installment of Books, Feminism and Conversation from Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.